It's Tuesday, February 6th, and the lawmakers who once fought for this bill are making sure it doesn't stand a chance. We start here. Senators unveil a bipartisan border bill only to hear it's dead on arrival. I'm a little confused how it's worse than I expected when it builds border wall, expands deportation flights. Is this all about strengthening the border or weakening President Biden? The king of the United Kingdom has cancer. Our thoughts are, of course, with his majesty and his family. But Buckingham Palace won't even say what type of cancer he's got, what the secrecy means for Britain. And an Ivy League school brings back the SAT requirement. If you want to just pick out the students that will get the best grades at your college, then the SAT is a pretty good tool for that. White Dartmouth says if you don't like it, go write a personal essay about it. From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. For months, lawmakers in Washington have been trying to get a couple projects off the ground. On one side, you got Democrats who've been pushing to get foreign aid to Ukraine and Israel. We need to make sure uh, that we help our Ukrainian friends against Putin's aggression. Another priority comes from conservative Republicans who have been relentlessly focused on migrants coming across the southern border. Addressing the border crisis at home will help America meet each of the most glaring national security challenges. And as unrelated as those two issues may seem, it's gotten to the point where neither is likely to pass without the other. And some lawmakers, especially the more moderate Republicans, are like, I mean, these both sound good. Let's combine them into one bill. But in Congress, it's really easy for something like this to get derailed. Because the more people that know about what's in your bill, what's being debated, the more of them will try to hijack it, whip everyone else into a frenzy about it, and then campaign on it. So for weeks, Senate Republicans have been meeting with Democrats behind closed doors trying to craft a compromise bill. And on Sunday night, at long last, they came out and revealed the text. If they were hoping this would fly under the radar, that's clearly not happening. They spent all yesterday defending their bill, and now it's up for a vote in the Senate as soon as tomorrow. No one seems to quite know what's about to happen here. So let's go to ABC senior congressional correspondent Rachel Scott. Rachel, you've been waiting for this bill for a while now, right? What's in it? Oh my gosh. For months, Brad, and finally we have our hands on the text. 370 pages. Don't worry. We read through it all for you. This is the most sweeping border security package in decades. This is something that Republicans, mind you, have been calling for for years. That's a national security issue. I mean, the administration is turning their back on the fact that we have an out-of-control southern border. It's a $118 billion package. It adds $20 billion to strengthen the border, hiring new officers and Border Patrol agents. It also includes this trigger mechanism. So when migrant apprehensions reach 5,000 a day, the border would automatically shut down. It ends what Republicans call catch and release, where migrants are released into the country and often disappear while waiting for their court date to sort of oversee their asylum process. And it makes it a lot harder for migrants to claim asylum. So this expedites the process to address the backlog in the system, and it would quickly expel migrants who do not meet the qualifications. And of course, it also includes that $60 billion for Ukraine and $14 billion for Israel. So, okay, what was the reaction around Congress? Yeah, well, it wasn't exactly what Senate negotiators were expecting or hoping for. I mean, mind you, they've been behind closed doors now for months, trying to work out this compromise, hoping that when they finally revealed it to their colleagues, that they would all rally behind it. And that is not what is happening. So let's just kind of backtrack here a little bit and rewind. 
Months ago, you had Republicans saying, we will not support additional funding for Ukraine and Israel unless you give us border security. That was the demand from Republicans that Democrats had to commit to. We on the Democratic side are pursuing getting all of this done. Ukraine, Israel, humanitarian aid, Indo-Pacific, border, together. We even heard it from Speaker of the House Mike Johnson back in November. What we've said is that if there is to be additional assistance to Ukraine, which most members of of Congress believe is important, we have to also work in changing our own border policy. But Brad, that was all before Donald Trump got involved. On my first day back in the White House, I will terminate every open borders policy of the Biden administration. Trump comes out, he wants to run on immigration this election cycle, and he started urging Republicans to reject this compromise. A lot of the senators are trying to say respectfully they're blaming it on me. I said, that's okay, please blame it on me, please because they were getting ready to pass a very bad bill. He calls it a gift to Democrats in this election year. And some Republicans have openly acknowledged they don't want to give President Biden a win on an issue that is really important to their base. So now all of a sudden you have all these Republicans, especially in the House, they are blasting this bill. And the House Speaker Mike Johnson completely changed his tune. I just don't believe that the Senate bill, as I've explained in all of our statements, meets the criteria that's necessary to solve the problem. He once called for this compromise. Well, now he calls it a waste of time. He says it's dead on arrival. And guess what? After all of that, after months of negotiations, it won't even get a vote in the House. Well, wait, Rachel, if you're saying it's dead on arrival, because of, in part, like Trump and and Trump loyalists, is it because there's stuff in the text they don't like? Or is it literally just like we don't want to give Biden a win? So even something that's good for our voters, we're, we're not behind it right now. It's a little bit of a mixed bag, Brad. You have a lot of Republicans like the Speaker of the House who just says it does not go far enough. You have to fix asylum. You have to fix parole. You have to end the catch and release, the mass release of immigrants around the country, illegals around the country, as has been happening. They want to restore Remain in Mexico. They say they want to do a larger crackdown on the asylum process. They want to fix parole. They want to keep building that border wall that Trump promised years ago. But then you have other Republicans who just say flat out, look, we don't want to give Biden anything that can actually approve his approval ratings. We just don't want to go there. Wow. So a lot of those Republicans are saying the quiet part out loud. The reality here is it's just really hard to get anything done in an election year. And now you have these Senate negotiators, especially the Republicans, looking at their party and saying, hey, look, you called for this for years. I'm a little confused how it's worse than I expected when it builds border wall, expands deportation flights, expands ICE officers, Border Patrol officers, uh, detention beds. Now we're backtracking. What are we going to campaign on next election cycle? And how are we actually going to address the issue of the border? Right. This is this is not just Democrats, right, yeah. Rachel? Like these are Republicans saying we didn't get this stuff done under Trump. Now we can and being like, guys, what do you want us to do? Yeah. These Republican negotiators, Senator James Langford is looking around and saying, hey, guys, we've been calling for border security provisions for years now. Finally, look, we have something that Democrats actually can get behind that they support. The president has something he's trying to accomplish. He's trying to get elected back to be the president of the United States. I've got something I'm trying to accomplish. It's securing the nation and our and our borders right now. Does it do everything? No, of course not. But that's what compromise is all about here on Capitol Hill. Neither party gets everything that they want. But he's now asking Republicans, do you want to get something done over nothing? Wow, really interesting moment here because a lot of people thought this might have already been dead weeks ago. The Senate negotiators kept plugging away. They finally got something together. 
And yet it might be dead regardless, although now giving us an even deeper lesson on, on what's happening in election year here. Rachel Scott at the Senate right now. Thank you so much. Thanks, Brad. Next up on Start Here, it's a young reign, but an old monarch. And now the king has cancer. We'll take you to London after the break. We all know there are things in life that you have to compromise on. But when it comes to your health, there should be no compromise. Don't go back to that one doctor. You know the type, like I've had this person before, that doesn't actually listen to you or who seems just in a rush to end your appointment that you spent months making. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. You can search by location, availability, and insurance. So no compromises here because with ZocDoc, you got more options than you know. We're talking about booking appointments with tens of thousands of top-rated, patient-reviewed, credible doctors and specialists. Go to ZocDoc.com slash start here and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's ZocDoc, Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash start here. ZocDoc.com slash start here. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you ever wondered what you would do with an extra hour in your day? I think about this all the time. I'm like, I would be so productive. I'd exercise more or I'd read a book or I'd take a nap, like restore myself. We often find ourselves yearning for these extra hours, but the real question is, what would you do if you were making yourself a priority? Well, how about therapy? It can help you discover what's important so you can make the most of your time. If you've ever benefited from therapy, you know how transformative it can be. It's not just for those who have experienced major trauma. Therapy empowers you to learn positive coping skills, set boundaries, and become the best version of yourself. If you're considering starting therapy, you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and tailored to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire. You'll be matched with a licensed therapist. And here's the beauty of it. You can switch therapists if you're not finding the right fit. No additional charge. Take the first step. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash start here today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash start here. The official coronation of King Charles III was nine months ago today. I, Charles, do solemnly and sincerely... Remember, he waited until he was 73 years old to assume the throne. God save King Charles! Finally, the title gets changed, the money gets printed, and he starts doing the job he's been waiting his whole life to do. Well, yesterday, Buckingham Palace announced that Charles has cancer. ABC's Zoe McGee covers the royal family. Zoe... This seemed to come out of the blue. What do we know about this diagnosis? So I, I, I think you're right, Brad. Everyone is, is pretty shocked by this news. What we were expecting to hear was the king who was admitted about 10 days ago into hospital for what the palace told us was a benign prostate operation. He had an enlarged prostate. We're now hearing that as a result of that operation and the investigations around it, that he has a different type of cancer. Now, the palace have to walk this very fine line between He is the head of state, so the public has a right to know about his health to a certain extent. But they also, he also has a right to protect his privacy, especially his medical privacy. So the palace are walking this fine line telling us that he has had a cancer diagnosis, but they are not telling us what sort of cancer. We don't know what stage it's at. We don't know what sort of treatment he's going to have. Hmm. 
We do know that he is feeling positive about it. That's what one thing that uh, a royal source has told ABC News, that he's, he's feeling positive about his treatment and he's looking forward to returning to his public-facing royal duties as soon as possible. Yeah, so what happens for his public duties? And, and I guess just what, what has reaction been like around London? So as, as soon as this news came out, well wishes were popping up all over social media, around the world. Concerned about him. Just heard his diagnosis. President Biden even spoke about it, and since then he's tweeted about it, and so did uh, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. We heard about it in um, the House of Parliament. Our thoughts are, of course, with His Majesty and his family. We also understand that Prince Harry, who we all know is in California, is flying back to the UK to see his father. And we know that Prince William has been in regular contact with his dad. Now, I think people are genuinely quite shocked. Not the news that I would have expected today, by a long shot. I'm sure he'll fight it, like anyone else would, but it's, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a horrible shock. He's got to have the best doctors. He's got the best chance. Age against him. I mean, this is now, like, the third royal health scare we've had in as many weeks. We had Princess, the Princess of Wales, Catherine, who was admitted to hospital for abdominal surgery. And then we heard on that same day that the king was going to have an operation on his prostate. And now... Catherine's out of hospital, recovering at home. Prince William is just looking after her and about to get back into into the royal swing of things when we get this news that the king has now been diagnosed with cancer. Yeah, when it comes to Prince William, Zoe, I mean, I don't want to assume anything, but since we don't know how serious the diagnosis is, I mean, does everyone at the palace start looking at William differently, I guess? Does his role change? I don't think it changes his job because as heir to the throne, he will always support the crown his father, the king. Mm. So in a sense, his role as the support act has just got that bit more important. Prince William's got a lot on his plate because his wife's out of hospital. He's been told that he's taking up a lot of childcare from her. And now he's going to have to step in and help out on, it, on with his father's role too. For example, on Wednesday at Windsor Castle, he's holding investiture, which is when he gives he gives um, awards to people and he makes people knights and stuff like that. And now he does step in for his father to do that occasionally. But we're probably going to see him do more stuff like that. Buckingham Palace have said that the king is going to reduce some of his public-facing duties. So that means going out on engagements, all those walkabouts that we're used to seeing him doing, meeting members of the public or holding audiences in Buckingham Palace. He's going to reduce those. But he is going to keep up with all his official state duties. So his position, his constitutional position as the head of state has not, so far, been affected by this diagnosis. So he's going to be reading those papers that we're used to seeing in the red dispatch boxes and holding weekly meetings with the Prime Minister and Privy Council meetings and things like that. We, we're just not going to see him publicly. Wow, just a, a dramatic turn of events here in the UK in, in just the last 24 hours. Zoe McGee, who covers the royal family every day. Thank you so much. No problem. Thank you, Brad. You might have noticed that over the last few years, fewer and fewer colleges require SAT scores. This is huge news for college admissions. The UCs are officially dropping SAT and ACT scores from their admissions. We saw this with Ivy League's admissions offices and other big private universities. And now even California's UC system says, if you don't want to take the test, don't bother. And this was hailed at the time as a way to even the playing field. Scholars have long said standardized tests 
favor students in privileged environments, especially those with access to tutors. So lots of advocates took to social media, praising the shift away from the bubbles. These tests do absolutely nothing to actually measure a student's more substantive competencies. Instead, it measures wealth. Well, in recent months, there's also been a growing backlash from experts who say, actually, maybe the SAT is getting a bad rap. Yesterday, Dartmouth University, one of the Ivies, announced it's once again making the SAT mandatory on applications. I want to bring in Jacob Vigdor, a professor of public policy and governance at the University of Washington. Professor Vigdor, I mean, you've studied this space, right? Where did this decision come from? Like, can you just catch us up on what's changed in recent months? Yeah, well, you know, this all goes back to 2020 when uh, we were in the middle of the pandemic and a bunch of colleges sort of realized just logistically, oh, we don't want kids getting together and sitting in a room and taking a standardized test. Let's make that optional. And it, it wasn't really any kind of academic decision. It was just, hey, this is something that we need to do to react to the pandemic. And so they switched their policy at that point in time um, for reasons not really having too much to do with the way that their process usually ran. And, and they've let it go for about three or four years now. Uh, but now we are seeing a number of institutions saying very openly that they are reconsidering. And then you have this decision from Dartmouth saying that, OK, yeah, we're bringing the SAT back. Yeah, what is Dartmouth hoping happens here? What's the reasoning from schools like this? Yeah, well, if you look at, at the stated reasoning that, that Dartmouth provides, here's what they'll tell you. They say that there's a certain set of students, and maybe they're economically disadvantaged. They're not going to the, the greatest high schools. They don't take AP courses because their schools don't offer them. We don't have a good way to find out that they've got what it takes to succeed at our university academically. But they show us a good SAT score, and then, okay, we're going to admit them. But if they don't have any SAT score at all, then they're too nervous to admit the student. That That is the stated rationale for this. It's it's all about uh, promoting egalitarianism. St stated rationale. I feel a butt coming in here, Professor, because what, what do you think of this? One of the issues is that these schools say the moment we made this optional, a lot of kids in different minority groups stopped including their scores when, in fact, the scores would have helped their case to add them in. They thought they weren't good enough, and they were. What do you think of that? Yeah, so here's the thing. So Dartmouth is saying, oh, look, we got this file from an applicant where um, when we discovered later on what their SAT score was, we say to ourselves, oh, I wish that they had told us because we would have admitted them. Mm. And so their response is, well, let's make the SAT required. And then a student like that will give us the SAT score and we won't make that mistake. I think what they're neglecting is the possibility that they make the SAT score required again. And that student that we're talking about does not apply because they realize oh, well, now that I have to reveal this information that I'm ashamed of, I'm not even going to bother applying. Because here's the one thing that has really happened at Dartmouth and other elite institutions since they dropped the testing requirements. The application numbers are through the roof. Mm. Dartmouth used to get about 20,000 applications a year. And what they just said is that for, for this coming year, they've got over 30,000. So that's 10,000 extra applications. Because people are saying, hey, now that Dartmouth is test optional, I think I have a shot. Dartmouth brings the test back, and a lot of those students are going to say, oh, well, you know, I, I, I don't think that I can make it, so I won't bother. Well, okay, and so that's like one thing that the Dartmouth people are saying. The other is that there is a link between if students get good SAT scores, they'll do better at college. Is that, I mean, isn't that what admission is supposed to evaluate, right? Or is it? Yeah, well, I think that there's different ideas about what one of these colleges should be doing. If you want to just pick out the students that will get the best grades at your college, 
then the SAT is a pretty good tool for that. If what you're trying to figure out is, you know, am I admitting a student who's going to succeed here? You can actually do a pretty good job of that without the SAT because the secret about these Ivy League schools is that they're hard to get into, but once you're there, it's it's not that difficult to pass. Mm. So the percent of students at a place like Dartmouth who make it back for their second year is 98%. Mm-hmm. At your local community college, it's probably about 50. So once you're in at Dartmouth, it's not that they have these really difficult courses that, that an ill-prepared student will find almost impossible to pass. Pretty much everybody who gets a seat at Dartmouth has what it takes to succeed. And and so like they're already choosing a some somewhat of a cream of the crop. They've already got great teachers. Like the students there, whoever they are, are going to do okay. Exactly. And this is actually something that Harvard admitted in the admissions lawsuit a few years ago about affirmative action. What they said is, we have a huge number of applicants who could succeed here academically. And then we're just trying to, to sort of pick who are the lucky ones that will let in. So there you go. I mean, so the data from Dartmouth actually prove is that you can go test optional you can find uh, a a student body that is just about as diverse as if you had used the SAT. And academically, they will do just fine. Mm. You know, if if the folks in the admissions office at Dartmouth are are kind of sweating because they've got 30,000 applications and they, they long for the days when they had 20,000, that is the one rationale I can see for putting the SAT back in. Because the SAT is a barrier. The SAT keeps people from applying to these elite schools. In, in terms of anything else, in terms of making the, the school more demographically or socioeconomically diverse, it doesn't seem to matter either way. In terms of making sure that your admitting students are not going to fail out, it doesn't seem to matter either way. The one thing that the SAT is doing for these schools is that it's, it's scaring thousands and thousands of students away from applying. Really interesting. Like you think you're going to magically now see all your students' SAT scores to distinguish them more. In essence, though, it's just that many people are not going to apply in the first place. And you go back to the old days where you thought you were seeing everyone's SAT scores. And guess what? You weren't. Uh, Jacob Vigdor from University of Washington. Thank you so much for the perspective. Thanks, Brad. Thanks for having me. Okay, one more quick break. When we come back, who else wishes their smartphone was just a little bit dumber? One last thing is next. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. And one last thing. If Movember is for growing mustaches and dry Januarys for abstaining from alcohol, what would happen if you went all in on flip phone February? This is a real concept, getting rid of your smartphone for a whole month and relying solely on an old school flip phone. You still got the ability to call, text, and I don't know, practice juggling with the thing to pass the time. The concept of doing this for a month started with a recent New York Times piece, but the idea of smartphone abstinence isn't new. There are entire web forums designed to support people who want to get a flip phone or maybe just dumb down their smartphone. Okay, let's figure out which apps we use the most. That means deleting all the apps 
apps that take up so much of our day, like social media and games. Let's see, email, TikTok, Instagram, two dots, baby, because I had to beat four levels in a row yesterday. But then you immediately start going into panic mode. Like, what about mapping services? Well, you're still allowed to use your computer. You just got to print out directions ahead of time. What about news alerts? You'll still get headlines. You just got to sign on to a website for them. The biggest concern for lots of people is work. What if I don't see that email or Slack within moments? Will adherents describe telling their colleagues to call me if it's urgent? Otherwise, I'll see it when I'm at my desk. Okay, literally, as I'm trying to do this, I'm getting Slack notifications being sent to my phone. If you go the extra step of getting a flip phone, there are new challenges. One is finding one that uses your phone carrier, which is possible. The other is remembering what it's like to text on a nine-digit keyboard. Some converts describe texting their friends so slowly that they eventually just break down and call them. Meaning, instead of mass texts wishing everyone you know a happy new year, you might, ugh, have to have an actual conversation with someone. The biggest effect of all this, though, is on our attention. You know that feeling of not having anything to do, so you just reach for your phone? Or you wanted to check the weather, only to find that you've now opened six apps out of pure habit. These are called phone fingers, instinctively going back to apps again and again that are sometimes designed to be addictive. Pew Research says among 20-somethings, a majority describe themselves as, quote, constantly online. Let's see. So what was I doing? I'm looking at... <laughs> what am I doing? I'm trying to look up at which apps I use, and now I'm just like looking at Facebook, trying to clear the alerts. I don't even like using Facebook. Flip phone fans have described having less anxiety, deeper relationships, better sleep, and more time at their disposal. But they've also described getting worried messages from loved ones asking, where have you been? Are you okay? So if you want to ditch the smartphone this month or any month, maybe give your contact list a heads up. By the way, some of these new flip phones do have podcast feeds built into them. I'm not sure if that's cheating, but I'm just saying that is an option. More on all these stories at abcnews.com or the ABC News app. I'm Brad Milkey. See you tomorrow. We've got the exclusive view behind the table. What is happening here? It's just beautiful chaos. Every day, right after the show, while the topics are still hot, the ladies go deeper into the moments that make the view the view. To be honest, I was thinking about asking him for a foot massage, and then I, I just froze. This is the best big on yeah. TV. And you know, anything can happen. That is what we do here. I'm not going to lie, the chair's a little small for my behind. <laughs> <laughs> the View's Behind the Table podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.